0: I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. It's, we're gonna be looking at chapter five and we're looking this morning, continuing to look this morning at what Paul talks about in terms of a life that is truly free and he describes that life of freedom as one which is controlled by, led by, filled with the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does is glorify and magnify Jesus. He makes him beautiful, desirable to us so that in love with him, we forsake all idols. We forsake all others that would compete with the supremacy of his mercy in our lives. The old Puritan preacher and poet John Donne in Ravish My Heart, Three Person God put it this way, take me to you. Imprison me for I accept you enthrall me shall never be free. It's in the embrace of Jesus that the soul discovers its true and perfect freedom. His mercy is so compelling, his beauty so powerful that this becomes the foundation of our existence and the chief motivation of our lives. And so Paul says that freedom is not found in pursuing our own course or what he describes as the works of the flesh, fallen nature, The kinds of things which, in our society, are honored and championed by those who would say, if you're really free, just do whatever you want to do. That's the mark of authentic freedom. But true freedom is found not in slavery to self, but found in the glorious liberty that belongs to us as God's children. That's why there are two crosses that are before us in the scripture. The cross of Jesus on which he died and bore the burden of our sins, took all of that shame upon himself, but also the cross that we take up. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and do it how often? Every day, every day we are putting to death those aspects of our lives which are contrary to the will of God and leaving them behind. We're giving them a Christian burial. How? Well, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Religion, mere religion, will always tell you to do this, do that, follow these six steps. It will root your relationship with God in your performance or it will commend to you, not a relationship with a person, but work that you do in order to somehow change your life. That's why that whole movement is called a self-help movement. But DIY salvation is contrary to the gospel. We cannot do it ourselves. And if you try, you will soon discover that that's the case. And so where is the place that we can find true transformation? And we discover that the place is a person and that person is the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul highlights his work in this section as he talks about the life of Jesus being formed within us. So let's look in Galatians 5, verse 16, and then we're gonna drop down to verse 22 and read into chapter six. So verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, this is how we've come to life. It's through the Holy Spirit that we've come to life. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The very one who brought us to life is the one who will give us power to live, keep in step with the Spirit. And then he begins to talk about what's contrary to that. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, Paul's talking about what it really means to live full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what you think a Spirit-filled Christian looks like, or maybe even a Spirit-filled church. When I was growing up uh, in the Lutheran church, the Holy Spirit certainly showed up in the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit and so on, but we didn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And then in my teen years, I started uh, hearing a lot more about the Holy Spirit from other Christians. And I didn't know what to make of it. They were talking about the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I particularly heard about phenomena like prophesying or speaking in tongues. I'd never heard of such a thing. I, I didn't have any idea what it was. I'm just a good Lutheran kid. I didn't know what any of these other churches were teaching on these things and really didn't understand the distinctive approaches that different communities take on that. I had an independent fundamentalist Baptist friend And I asked him, what is this whole thing about speaking in tongues? And he said, well, if you speak in tongues, you're demon-possessed, and you'll go to hell. I was like, wow, okay, how about that? Who knew? Oh, my gosh. And then I had a Pentecostal friend, his name was Tim. And I said, Tim, what is all this thing about speaking in tongues? He said, oh, speaking in tongues, that's a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't do it, you'll go to hell. And I was like, well, well, damned if I do and damned if I don't. What am I going to do here? It turns out that the marks of being filled with the Spirit aren't necessarily spiritual gifts, which can be given instantaneously and aren't really an evidence that somebody necessarily is right with God at all. After all, there are people on Judgment Day who will say, well, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. And so there are works that can be done through people's lives of power that really don't prove anything about them. It just testifies to the mercy of God. But the mark of a spirit-filled person is what Paul describes here as not a gift, but fruit, something which is cultivated and grown within us. It's the life of Christ within. He describes it as love and joy and peace and patience and so on. And he says, against this, there is no law. This is the life of Christ within us. You and I are called to be people who walk in the spirit. What does that look like? Well, the very first thing Paul turns to is something that's very interesting, and it has to do with the way the gospel works in our lives. Remember, the whole point of what's going on in Galatians is the preservation, the cherishing of the truth of the gospel. These churches have had the simplicity of the message of the gospel subverted in their lives. The message that you are right with God, not on the basis of anything you've done, but completely and exclusively on the basis of everything Christ has done, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That is the basis of our being right with God. People had come along and said, oh yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, but with your faith in Jesus, you're gonna have to add in all of these other things and that will commend you to God. Well, of course, as soon as you get on the treadmill of thinking I've gotta add in what I do rather than trusting in the one who said it is finished, As soon as you start adding your parts to it, you you lose all peace. You never know, well, when have I done enough? When do I know that I'm truly right with God? Or if I am right with God today, I'm not sure that I will be by Thursday. And so the introduction of uncertainty and anxiety and fear comes into play. And Paul deals a death blow to that, reminding them that they are right with God. They have favor with God not because of anything they have done or because there's something in them to commend them to God, but because God has loved them before the foundation of the world and sent his son to be their savior. And he has paid the full price for their sin. This is why they're God's own children. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to them, not only to bring them to new life, but to form the life of Jesus within us. All of that is God's mercy and grace to us. And so Paul says, Paul says, this gospel message is now not only something which is the ABCs of the Christian faith, because I do think that's how some people think of it. Oh, the gospel. That's, that's for people who don't know Jesus. Well, it is for people who don't yet know Jesus. But the gospel is something we keep preaching to each other because the gospel isn't just the alpha, it's the omega of the message of the Bible. And it's something we keep preaching to ourselves and preaching to one another because we are gospel amnesiacs we forget that our security in life, our place in life itself is in Christ and not in our performance. We go, okay, I've got it with God, but then we start thinking that my security and my rest is in, in what other people think of me. Maybe even other Christians think of me. And that leads to a trap. And Paul deals with it here. He says, if the Holy Spirit is present with you, look at verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. The very first thing that the Holy Spirit gets after is the kingdom of self. And he says, don't be conceited. Now, conceited is an okay word. It's fine, but it doesn't really capture what Paul was saying. He wrote this in Greek, Obviously, first century, and it's been translated for us into English. And there isn't quite a contemporary English word that gets after what Paul was saying. The old King James version does have an expression in it when it translates this word, and it calls it vainglory. Don't be vainglorious. Now, that's not, that's a kind of archaic expression, and you're probably not going to use it this week. You're probably not going to come up to somebody in Costco and go, Stop being so vainglorious. But let, me, let me, if you will, if you'll allow me, take vainglory and give you kind of a contemporary version of that. Honor hunger. Honor hunger. What is honor hunger? Don't be honor hungry. Honor hunger says this. I have to have the first place. I have to be the person who gets the credit. I have to be the person everybody respects. I have to have the corner office. I have to have the biggest bonus. I have to have the best car. I have to have the best house. I have to have the applause. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be angry. I will take my marbles and go home. Where's my honor? I'm hungry for it. Don't be fooled by honor hunger. And then he says there's two evidences of honor hunger. Here's the first one, provoking, provoking. Now that's a word that could also be translated competing. It's a competitive spirit. Now that's hard for us as North Americans to let go of. We're drunk on competition. We love to compete. We, we turn everything into a competition. We have cooking competitions. We'll vote people off the island on whether or not they could come up with a dessert made out of, here's a package of hot dogs and a can of hummus. Please come up with a dessert in 30 seconds. We just compete over everything. Compete, compete, compete. And so we, we want to compete to be the, the top salesperson. We compete to be the, the primary vocalist or we compete to be the main musician. We compete to have the applause of people or the respect of our neighbors. And if we don't get it, we're angry. But there's another aspect, resentment. Envying each other, provoking, competing with each other or envying each other. You see the person who gets the applause. You see the person that has the car. You see the person that has the position of power and influence. They've got the corner office and you envy them. You are angry at them. You make them the object of your disdain and you make those cutting comments about them all the time. Oh yeah, sure. They've got the corner office. They were born on third and think they hit a triple. And so we complain about the position they're in because we're we're filled with provocation, competition, and we're filled with envy of where they are. Competition says, I'm the best and I'll prove it. Envy says, you're in the wrong place and I resent it. When I was 19, I was part of a mission team that was in England for the summer And I was having a real struggle. And the reason for my struggle is because the leaders of the team did not recognize the potency and value of my spiritual gifts. (laughs) This was my problem. And I thought this team was floundering. This team wasn't doing as well as I thought they should be doing. And if only they would do what I thought they should be doing, then everything would be fine. They were trampling over me, I said. I even said that to a friend of these guys, just walk all over me. They, they They don't give me any respect. I'm 19. These people are not respecting the the power of the anointing on my life. We may... (laughs) I'm still repenting. I'm still (laughs) repenting. I, I, I made my first visit that summer to Westminster Abbey. We're walking around Westminster Abbey. And as we're walking around, if you've ever been to Westminster, I mean, there's people buried in the walls, there's people buried underneath, there's people buried in the floors. There's only a couple of places you can't step on where people are buried. And, but you typically are walking all over graves. And as I'm walking over all these dead people, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. Now, as a Presbyterian, I should say, I've, it occurred to me. But, but let, me, let me blame the Holy Spirit. I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, do you think these people in these graves, are upset about you walking over them. And I said, well, no. The Holy Spirit said, why? I said, well, being an intelligent person, they're dead. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit said, and what's your problem? See, if you belong to Christ, then Jesus, I, my cross, have taken You've died, Paul says in Colossians, and your life is hidden, hidden with Christ and God. You'll be revealed with Jesus in glory when he comes again. The glory that will be ours is ours in the resurrection. It's not here. We're hidden. We live hidden lives with Christ while the whole world is chasing, chasing fame and fortune and wants attention and wants applause for the Christian. We're after the glory of God, the glory that's in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. We're after personal superiority and we're afraid of personal inferiority and both of these are actually forms of pride. And we've forgotten Paul's exhortation in Romans chapter 12 where he says, I urge you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world but rather Be transformed, be changed from the inside out. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then everyone stops at verse two and they don't go on to verse three, which says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think about yourself as to have sober judgment. You see, if our lives are laid down if we are dead to begin with. We can give a Christian burial to our honor hunger. We can do away with our inferiority complexes and our superiority charges. And we can simply say, my life is hidden with Christ. This is not about me, it's all about Jesus. You say, were you telling me to be a doormat? No, I'm not opening the doormat for Jesus Club. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is not about us. And what happens is the Holy Spirit awakens us to the fact that we are sinners who need a savior. He awakens us to the fact that every single day we need the grace of God pouring into our lives And that turns us into servants. And that's why those who are filled with the Spirit become servants of the will of God. Look at chapter six, verse one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should punch him in the face and tell him, I got him, I got him, caught him red-handed, here he is. Drag him before the elders and condemn him. Oh, wait, no, that's not exactly what it says, is it? Now this says, if you catch a person red-handed in their sin. See, who was caught red-handed in their sin and dealt with harshly? Well, there was a woman taken in adultery in John's Gospel, chapter eight, and the Pharisees said, ha, ah, ha, ha, we got her, we got her. And they threw her down in front of Jesus and said, the law says stone her. This is gonna be a great day. Let's kill somebody with the love of God. No, no, look, what's the mark of the spiritual person? The spiritual person even when somebody is in sin, looks to restore them with gentleness. Gentleness is, it's the same word that's used earlier about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. It's the word Jesus uses about himself. I am meek, gentle, and lowly. How did Jesus handle that broken woman? He cared for her. He freed her. People wanted to kill her. He washed her clean. The word that Paul uses here for restoring is catartizo. It's, it's a medical term. It means taking a, a bone that's out of joint and getting it back into its place. One of the marks of spirituality is not saying gotcha. It's saying, how can I help you? How can I come to you in this place of brokenness and walk with you? The churches give language to this, they give voice to it, they'll say, this is a church where broken people are welcome until somebody broken comes in and then they go, well, not that broken. I didn't mean like really broken. I mean, because man, you are seriously broken. <laughs> counseling center's down the block. Well, well the counseling center may be part of the answer, but is but the word of God, so's the worship of God, so are the, the bread and the wine the Lord's table. All of these are there. And that means you and I are meeting with people who are in pain. And you go, well, they made their bed, they can sleep in it. That's the mercy of God in action right there. No, look what Paul says. He says in verse two, carry each other's burdens And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You say, well, yeah, but pastor, at the very end of the passage you read, you said, everybody's got to carry their own burden. Carry your own burden, buddy. Don't saddle me with your burdens. I've got my verse. Everybody needs to carry their own burden. But there are two different words used for burden here. In verse six, where he says, every one of us have our own burden to carry. Let me translate it for you. It's a word, we would translate it today as backpack. Everybody carry your own backpack. But the word that Paul uses earlier in the text when he says, he says, bear one another's burdens, carry one another's burdens. He's not talking about a backpack. The word could be used, back breaking burden. Every one of us have a backpack, but sometimes in life you have back breaking burdens. If something is a 500-pound weight, here, come lift this 500-pound weight. You're just supposed to lift it. Mike Veets can do it. Mike Veets can do it. I can't do it. If I'm gonna lift the 500 pounds, I'm not gonna be able to do it on my own. There was a man in the Gospels who was paralyzed and his friends carried him. He was a burden to be born, but they delighted to do it. And they carried him to Jesus. They ripped a hole in a roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. I'm just gonna say something to you as an old guy. If you live long enough, you get to say this kind of stuff. There are times in life where you are carrying and there are times in life where you are the carried If you live long enough, you will get to be in both roles. There are times where people will carry you, and there are times in life where you get to carry others. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life, in those moments, in those moments when you are carrying others, you are not thinking, ah, he's such a burden. No, you're ripping holes in the roof because you want to bring this person to Christ. When the Spirit is at work, Broken, the bitter, the trapped are healed, the proud and the angry are humbled, and the burdens of life are shared together in a community called the church. Why? Because there's a different spirit at work than the spirit of the age, than the spirit of the world. Here's the spirit of the world it's that competitive, envying spirit. There was a man named Cain the first son, the elder brother, the first son of Adam and Eve, the elder brother of Abel. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he didn't look with favor on Cain. He didn't get his applause. He didn't get his honor hunger met. Abel did. He hated him. He was angry with him. And you know what Cain did to Abel. You know what that elder brother did with his younger brother. He killed him. He murdered him. And God came to Cain. And he said, where's your brother Abel? And Cain said, do you remember the famous rhetorical question? Am I my brother's keeper? Fascinatingly, the New Testament calls Jesus our elder brother. Jesus is my elder brother. He's your elder brother. And when you and I were missing... From heaven. When you and I were rebels against God and running far from God, when you and I hated God, we had murderous envy in our hearts, competitive hatred in our hearts. And God said, Where are they? Jesus did not say, Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus looked at us and said, I am your keeper. I will give up my glory. I will give up the wonder, the beauty of heaven. I'll give up the throne. And I'll become a slave. And I will die for you. I will give, because here's the gospel, my life for your life. Jesus is the true and greater elder brother who came not to kill us but to save us. And then he puts his heart inside of us so that the love that says, my life for your life becomes the motivating factor of our entire existence. I'm not looking for the applause of people. I'm not looking on anyone else's success and thinking if only that were mine. I have been given a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Destitute, everything taken away like the song that we sang earlier, said, I still have heaven. And Jesus, as the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. That not only transforms the way you think about your relationship with God, it transforms the way you think about your relationship with people. In Charles Dickens' great novel, a tale of two cities that begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, It comes in the end to a man named Charles Darnay who was sentenced to death and he's awaiting execution. And a man who looked strangely like him but who lost out to him in the competition for the hand of the woman they loved, Sidney Carton, does not want him to die. He breaks into the jail, into the Bastille where he's being held in Paris and and Carton goes up to him and slugs him right on the jaw and knocks him out and has him taken out of prison, carried out of the prison and he takes his place, he dies in his place, Carton for Darnie because he loved him and he loved his family. And when someone said to him in the jail, as a woman said to him, are you dying in his place? And he said, yeah. And then maybe the most famous sentence of the novel, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done because it is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. What causes us to live lives that are laid down who look at the people we work with and say, I'll give my life for yours? I'll take the blame instead of blowing the whistle on you. What turns our hearts away from the kingdom of self and into the kingdom of the Holy Spirit? It's the transforming love of Jesus Christ that's communicated to us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, the Holy Spirit can come to dwell within you now and communicate to you the great love that God has for you that secures you, that anchors you, so that you don't have to live competitively with others so you don't have to look on the success of others with envy and anger, that you can rest in the awareness of the love and the joy that God has in you and the peace he gives you through the gift of his son. And so whether you're in the balcony or joining us online or here, I wanna encourage you to simply bow your heart and say, Jesus, Create in me the life of the Holy Spirit that delivers me from honor hunger and makes me hungry only for the honor of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are mountains in our heart, mountains of selfish kingdoms. It's deeply rooted in us. We don't like it when we don't get the credit. We feel insecure when we see the success of others. And the drivenness of our society threatens to undo the security that we have in our hearts that can only come from the smile of heaven. Deliver us from it and focus our eyes on Jesus who gave his life for us, who bore our burdens for us so that we can give all of our cares to him who cares for us and be at rest, finally be at peace in the beauty of the gospel. In the one who said, I will be the elder brother and I will give my life for your life. Amen. Let's all stand together, shall we, and rejoice.